If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. Welcome to another episode of And Security for All. As most of you know, I'm also the CEO of FutureCon. We put on cybersecurity conferences all across North America, and I just came off a whirlwind of events. Um, I'm finally home this week. We were, we've been all over the last couple of months, but I've been like the last three weeks, I was in Columbus, Ohio, and then the following week, we went to Indianapolis, and then we ended up in San Diego, and next week, we are going to be in Phoenix. We have Nashville and Boston, Atlanta and Houston, and then 2023 is wrapped up. So for all of our listeners out there, um, we'd love to have you come. 2023 has been amazing compared to 2022 and then um the COVID times, we've been having uh, packed houses and we do run all of our events in a hybrid mode. So if you can't make one of our events in person, you can always log into our virtual platform. So it's been amazing. It's been a great year. It's been an exhausting year. Looking forward to some downtime. And I can't believe we're already approaching the uh, holidays. Thanksgiving and Christmas is going to be here and Hanukkah before you know it. So excited that I'm in the Midwest. So we're getting the really beautiful fall leaves. And um, although it's about 80 degrees today with fall leaves, it's a little crazy, but um, we're going to have snow in a few days. So wherever you are, I hope the weather is beautiful and I hope you're having a great week. And as everyone, I'm happy it's Friday and looking forward to the weekend. So Excited for another great show. I have another great guest today. He um, was actually, he sat on our panel last week in San Diego. He's been a great supporter of FutureCon, and he is a good friend of mine and very happy to have him on the uh, show today. Today, we're going to cover a lot of different things. We're going to talk about some of the latest breaches and security practices. Um, I have Darren Bennett, who has a wide re uh, wide array of a background he's a global information and cybersecurity leader with over 25 years of security experience he um, recently was the former uh, CISO for the city of San Diego he has FBI background um, there's um, he I, I can't even I can't even put it into words he has a very long bio and I'd rather get the words from his mouth so um, welcome to the show Darren nice to have you here today uh, thank you, Kim. I'm trying to adjust my screen here, but it's good enough, I think. Um, I'm impressed that you said you're looking forward to some downtime. I didn't know you ever took downtime. Well, I try to. My downtime compared to other people's downtime are probably two different things. So <laughs> I, I was uh, very fortunate after San Diego. I uh, flew out to Park City. Um, we have a condo out there, so I kind of had five days of downtime in the mountains, and it was awesome. So waiting, and it's snowing out there now, so before we know it, I think you're a skier, aren't you? I am. I ski and snowboard, and if I if you call me a skier, then my snowboarder friends don't like that, and if you call me a snowboarder, my skier friends don't like that, but I like them both. They're just different, so yeah. 
So you have kids. Are they uh, snowboarders or skiers? They're they're mixed. Um, my daughter, she snowboarded for quite a while, and now she skis, and she's um, she's good at both. But I think that we tend to like to go into some of the steeper, further backcountry stuff where there's a lot of powder, and I just think she realizes that's easier for uh, on a pair of skis in general. Yeah, well, can't believe it's that time of the year. And last year in Park City, it was insane, all the snow they got. And I hope it doesn't have, I hope it's, I'm afraid for the city. I mean, they say they can handle it, but that was insane. I don't like snowing when you have that much snow. I don't like skiing when there's that much snow. Like what? I was, I was like Popeye one day, like I was uh, like skiing and I just fell down, like just, and I get up and it would just knock me back down. I was like, okay, this is not fun. But anyway, we're not, this is not a ski podcast, but it's always fun to talk about some of the um, things coming up. But um, I appreciate you being on the show. I know it was the last minute. Um, you know, you, 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 we tried to have you on a couple of weeks ago and with my uh, travel, I had to cancel a lot of things. So for all of our listeners out there, I apologize that we were supposed to be on the show and just had tech difficulties with my traveling. But boy, you have um, a wide array background from everything. I was just kind of looking at your LinkedIn and even before the FBI, like tell us a little bit about you, Darren Bennett, and how you got started in this industry. And I was looking at your LinkedIn and like you started at way back at um, SAIC as an IT manager. So how'd you go from there to ending up in the FBI? It's a good question. First of all, I think that you give me too much credit, but I love it. Thank you. Um, you know, like most people in our field, I have a I have a varied background on on technology. I, I remember when I was in school, I went out and looked for some internships, and really, um, it, it was fairly easy to find internships. But this was many years ago; it was a little more difficult to find solid IT jobs. And I was fortunate in that I had an opportunity with SAIC Science Applications International here locally in San Diego. Um, and it was my my first real tech job and they hired me as a systems administrator i had very little responsibility other than to help people work on you know if they had system problems um, over time my responsibility increased they had people reporting to me and there was this thing called computer security which back in those days was maybe like a i don't even know if it was a secondary thought it was like way down the list um, it just wasn't as big a concern, but I took interest in it, started studying it and became the in-house expert of sorts there. Um, after working for SAIC for almost 10 years, I was given, I knew some people at the supercomputer center, found out they were hiring and applied. Um, they were hiring a chief information security officer. I, I think I was very fortunate there as well that I must have interviewed really well because, I mean, I, I understood security. I even taught um, some security classes for SANS, some very basic ones at the time. But I was fortunate enough to get in with the Supercomputer Center here in San Diego, and I was CISO there. Um, while there, I got to know some folks working at the FBI. I mean, I, I can tell the audience that if you guys are are a small or large industry, I would recommend that you get to know your local FBI folks because you want to have those relationships before you need them. 
so that if you need them, you know who to talk to and it's not, you're just not reaching out blind. Um, anyway, at the supercomputer center, we didn't have any major incidents, but I just got to know the bureau. Um, they would share threats with me. And one day they were in there and they casually said, you know, we're looking, we're hiring. And maybe it was foolish, but I responded with, oh, I'd be interested. Um, and then about a year later, because it takes a long time for them to onboard someone by the time they do background checks on a polygraph and all that craziness. Um, but somehow I got through all of that. And I was now on a cyber squad here in San Diego, working directly for the FBI, fighting cybercrime. And you talk about, like, for a geek, that's kind of a dream job. I mean, I did it for eight years before I finally um, decided to move on. You, you'll see a pattern here. I tend to get somewhere and stay put for a while. I know a lot of people today hop around, but I was with them for about eight years. We investigated hundreds at least hundreds of incidents across the nation and internationally. Um, it was a, a, a dream job. And, and frankly, I, I was tempted to stay there. It was a very hard decision when I had an opportunity to go over and become the chief information security officer at the city of San Diego. But I, I did do that. And until recently, I was there for six years. And then recently, now I am uh, with a defense contractor and I um, manage their SOC and the team there. Um, it feels good to be a little more hands-on, I guess. Um, so so that, that's kind of my, my short story. Um, it's not so short, but, you know, I, there's no direct path, I don't think, for most people in technology. We tend to zip around. I, and I'm, I'm blessed because I, I have decent technical skills um, and I have the leadership side. And I think that a lot of people have one or the other, so... Well, that was really like from going from SAIC to your next job and like taking on the CISO role. I mean, that's what a great, what a great accomplishment because it takes so many people such a long time to take the steps to get up to that. So when you were at the FBI, what was your title? What was your actual title at the FBI? I was, a, I was hired as a computer scientist and by the time I left, I was responsible for the Western. I was a regional lead for the Western region of the U.S. and their computer scientist program. Um, I think computer scientist, to me, I picture someone that loves to program, lives coding. Um, though I can code, I, I am not that person. I, uh, I, I did scripting when I needed to. I reviewed other code and malicious code. But I, I feel I always felt like the title computer scientist was a little bit, I guess, heavy. It was a little bit of a heavy title for me. Um, it, it portrayed me to be some Uber programmer, and and I wasn't. But I did get very, um, very well trained, and I got a really strong understanding of the investigative process, um, doing computer forensics, doing malware reverse engineering and the and really the fun part was starting to get to know some of the actors out there that were attacking different organizations do you feel like when you were in the fbi that you know 10 15 years ago we weren't hearing about you know the same kind of threats that we're hearing about today so you probably really watched the evolve the involvement of bad actors and did you start seeing that i mean i'm sure you saw crime on a whole different level in the FBI, but like, what was the progression of like where you were when you started with the FBI to where you are today? 
I um and a lot of I think you may have heard this at the conference when I was on the panel, but I for me it, it cyber comes back to the basics most of the time. And though I think that the adversaries are a lot better than they used to be as far as I mean it was like shooting fish in a in a barrel as they say when I first started with the bureau. I mean our friends from a far eastern country that begins with the letter C were all over our country's systems and wreaking havoc and the tools in place weren't great at those at that time i mean that was what i was with the bureau until six years ago but i mean i i was there eight years so 14 years ago something like that if my math is right but you know it, when we would go to an organization and find out that they had been compromised or they needed our help and they would provide us with a disk image it was a lot easier to find the malicious content back then, I think. I think that now the actors have realized they have to up their game. Security tools are so much better that it's just, it's no longer as easy for the for our adversaries to jump on a system. I mean, we used to joke that, you know, is this the A team? And we'd be like, nope, no way. This is like their C or D team because it, it was too easy for them. And, I, and I'm glad to see that in... Our country and in industry, I feel like things have really improved. Um, so now they have to, maybe not the A team, but they use the B team a lot more than the C or D or E or F or whatever team. Um, it, I feel like there's not as much low-hanging fruit for the adversaries. And that makes it more challenging for the for us that are doing engineering and analysis, though, as well, because now you know, the, the things that are successful are more advanced and harder to see. Um, but as I was saying in the beginning, I think that it comes down to the vast majority of intrusions that I saw when I worked at the Bureau were not because the hackers were super elite gurus. It was because systems weren't patched and a known vulnerability was open. Um, people just weren't following best practices. And I, I hate to say it, but though I don't work for the FBI and I don't see hundreds of different companies, I see <laughs> the company I work for and I saw a whole bunch of my prior employers and it still comes down to the same thing. It's it's hard for all of us to keep all those systems patched and up to date, be up to date on what the new vulnerabilities are. Um, that basic cyber hygiene thing. I mean, you look at what happened in in Vegas and social engineering. I mean, they could have had, well, there, there's things they could have done different, but I mean, you can have the best security in the world. And if someone just lets someone in the door, there's not much. It's very, very difficult to battle that. So you need other things in place. Do you think they had the best security in the world out in Vegas? These are that's a dangerous question for me to. <laughs> I, answer, I don't want to put you in a in a compromise. I you have to be careful what you say. But it's so interesting to me that you know <laughs> uh, that like MGM has so much money. It was just so much easier to pay the ransom you know, because of all the money they were making. So when you have that much money that you're consuming on a daily basis, are you worried? Is security your priority? I, well, it's always about business needs, in my opinion. If you're a mature organization and you really care about security, you're looking at balancing your business needs versus your security needs. And you can have a perfectly secure environment, but you're not going to be able to do business. And you can have a easy to do business in environment, but if it's not secure, then that can collapse your business or impact it as we saw. Um, do I think they had a, a great secure, I think that they had a mature, relatively mature security program. I think that one thing I've respected, at least from what I've been hearing is 
they didn't claim they had perfect security over there. Um, I, I'll tell you this, if anyone comes to me and tells me if they're a large organization and they say that they're hacker proof or they've got a perfectly secured environment, that that's just silly. I mean, to me, that that's silly. There is no such thing. It's like if you say that your house is perfectly maintained, that there's no work that needs to be done. There is always things you can improve. You know, the paint's getting old, or hey, we could use new pipes, or we could get the floor redone. There is or dust in the corners, um, and I think that's part of what makes our job so challenging is just trying to figure out what are our priorities and how do we keep our house clean or together. And do we make, let's make real sure that the critical items are the first on that priority list and that they're protected accordingly. Cause you can't, it's almost impossible to make everything perfectly secure, but you can pick your targets and know where your assets are. Yeah, I can uh, relate to that on a different analogy because I live in a hundred year old home. So <laughs> there's never anything, you know, you really do have to pick what, because there's always something that has to be fixed, you know, that's just how whole old historic homes are. But um, so let's talk a little bit like, so you leave the FBI, you go over to the city of San Diego. And what was that transition like for you? And what were the similarities to working for the M? FBI and then going over, you're still working for the government. So I assume, you know, there was a lot of still the bureaucratical stuff, but <laughs> what was that? What was that? I was in the Navy, so I can say that, you know, just, I understand the government. I know you're in the Navy. My father retired um, from the reserves after serving in the Navy and he retired as a Navy captain. So I have a ton of respect for you guys that serve. Thank you. Well, I wasn't as I, I was actually out in Coronado for a long time. So it was, uh, yeah, I think the Navy is pretty cool, but I did not retire. I had like six years active and four years inactive, but I had a great time because we weren't in war or anything that was pre Afghanistan and everything. So my time is certainly not like the people that are serving our country now. So kudos to all that. But anyway, going back from your transition from the FBI to the city. Um, the transition, I mean, I, I worked for some great folks and with some great folks at the Bureau and it was very, very challenging for me. Uh, it, it still is, I still look back and go, you know, I went to a good thing from a good thing. So it was really tough to make the decision to do that. Um, I felt like I could stretch myself a little more in the CISL role for the city and that it was very, it's very different. I mean, at the Bureau, we're the ones doing investigations, we're the heroes. When something's going wrong with someone else, I don't know that we're the heroes really, but you know, we come in and they're welcoming us in, hopefully. Um, they may be surprised and unhappy at first that we're coming to them with bad news that we think for some reason, either a foreign actor or something is going on on their system. but. For the most part, when we're working with a victim company, unless we're going after a criminal um, in person at their house, the victim companies are very receptive and they're happy to have us there. Um, so that that's great, and they they're very cooperative. and And again, I, I think that you know the bureau does a really good job of working with organizations like that and providing um, valuable input back to the organization about how they can better protect themselves, prevent things from happening again. When, when I went over to the city or when I was in any of my jobs where I was on the other side of the equation, one thing I, I joke with my friends that are CISOs about is that being a CISO is hard because it, I, I use the analogy and I've done this with some friends, but you know, 
I should copy or trademark this or something because it's so I like it so much. But you know, if you're a firefighter and you're you're supplied well with the best tools that you could get, you're given a lot of money and training. I know they'd say no, you can always use more, um, and you're supported. So that's all great. But if you end up there is a fire in your region and you go and fight it and the house still burns down, it they're not gonna come after you and say, Oh, you're a terrible firefighter because the house burned down. They're gonna say, Well, we understand there's impact sometimes. On the cyber side, I think it's a little I think it's changed, but I think in general, even if uh, someone is doing a good job running their program, it can be a little scary. And the fact that an intrusion is happening, a lot of times people, um, maybe the CISO is not quite as supported. Now, I've been very fortunate. I was very well supported when I worked for the city and the supercomputer center. Um, but I hear about these CISOs who they're doing a lot of things right, but they just don't truly get that support from above. And especially when an incident's occurring. Um, and, and that's unfortunate. But yeah, it was very different coming over to the city because now I was the guy that, you know, we're trying to keep the bad guys out. And if they come in, it's not any opportunity for us to be a hero. It's, uh-oh, what happened? Why did they get in? Um, but it was, it was really fun. I had the probably, I mean, an outstanding team. And then my responsibilities within the city grew also. I mean, I... I was the CISO and I had my security team and the SOC team there, but then over time they expanded those responsibilities to um, where I became an assistant director reporting to the CIO and was responsible for the network team, the data center team, uh, the cloud team, the application team. And it, it was a lot, but it was really, really fun. And one thing that I loved about it is I was able to you know, holistically take, hey, you know what, the cyber team and the network team are both under yours truly. And if there's pushback from the network team about controls, or if the cyber team is being too ambitious, I could play that mediator and settle them down. Um, but yeah, no, it was a, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And uh, that that seems, you know, one of the things we were going to talk about today is the risk of our critical infrastructure. And I think I've had so many guests on my show that we talk about that all the time where I tell just my general friends that are not in cybersecurity, I happen to have a, uh, I have two fireplaces here, one's gas and one's wood burning that needs to be fixed and hasn't been working. And everyone's like, no, you need to turn it into gas. And I'm like, nope, I'm keeping my wood burning fireplace because if something happens, I need, I need fuel, you know, I need heat. So um, what is, I mean, we haven't, and maybe I'm naive on this, but I don't believe that we've seen a major, major hit on a critical infrastructure, you know, recently. What are your fears and what were your fear of being the CISO, you know, with that, that risk? And what was the difference between you as a CISO and the CIO? What responsibilities did you have when it came to that? And what were you? responsibilities did the CIO or the CTO have? I may make you repeat parts of that question because I... Okay. It was a lot. It was, <laughs> it was, it was a lot. But, but the bottom line is what was, I hate to always say it's such a cliche to say what was keeping you up at night, but did you have that fear about the infrastructure and your responsibilities as far as making sure something, and I know some of those fall in different municipalities under the city, but is that a big fear that 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 we are going to have a major attack? 
I think it goes back to what I kind of said when you asked me the question about the casinos. Um, you know, if you ask me if any anywhere I've ever worked or if I any organization I've ever seen is secure enough, I I wouldn't be a CISO if I said yes, because there's always things to improve. So that that is a little scary. I think that the city of San Diego has a really good team. I think the public utilities folks are 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 on top of it. I do think that you know, as we all know, it it's kind of crazy because it's it's like the elephant in the room, but no one talks about it. That in general, critical infrastructure, not just I mean, not just public utilities, but any of critical infrastructure, it, it's hard to secure because most of it is old and it's operational technology, which means it has to be running a hundred percent of the time. And the that's kind of like trying to change your brake pads on your car while you're driving. And it's it's very challenging. So I, I think that the thing that keeps me up at night is that most of those systems are air-gapped, which helps me sleep. But on the other hand, you still have to connect to them. Sometimes you do it with various means, um, you know, either introduce something that's an external device that has the data you want to bring onto that network, or there's a bunch of controls. But, you know, ultimately, even though they're, quote, air-gapped, you still have to bridge that gap to be able to do things on them. And my concern is always the same, which is what happens if something else, something bad bridges that gap when you are doing other things. Um, the consequences can be really high. And, and there's a lot of controls in place. And I think that really this past year, organizations like CISA um, and, and just the government in general have ratcheted down a little bit saying, you know, it's not good enough to just have it air gapped. You really need to be putting controls in place. Um, but yeah, that, that environment is one that it's um, no matter where you're at, it, it, it's um, it's a little scary to have it hosted. And then, I mean, if you want hellfire and brimstone, I I asked a friend of mine who was a specialist at, when I was working at the bureau. I said, you know, what what are the consequences of a, a public utilities system going offline? He said, it depends. And I said, what's worst case? And he said, well, we won't go there. But one thing that would be bad would be if you lose power, which isn't even a failure of your public, I mean, uh, well, I guess it's the electrical part of public utilities, but it's not a fail failure of the water department. But if you lose power in most cities, they have about 24 hours of water up in the towers and they have to pump water up to those. And so basically if you lose power about 24 hours later, um, people are gonna start having trouble flushing their toilets and getting water out of those faucet and for me that that just shows how important now there's other a million other things that the emergency services folks have in place they have ways to bring in water remotely they have ways to um bring in um diesel generators to to supplement that if that happened but you know human beings don't do well without water we can get even if we're cold as you said kim Cold is bad, but we usually have some time. Um, without water, human beings don't go very, don't do very well. So that that was something that always concerned me. And and again, there's a million things in place to help protect that. It's just, I mean, I don't know. It's it's like being in an emergency room. It's no matter how good the security is for that, it's such a critical set of systems that you really have to continue to push and be diligent. 
Well, I have a lot of guests that kind of freak me out. So I have like water delivered all the time by Amazon. I'm like, let me just have a case of water. And I just do it once a month, but I have a ton of water in my garage. But it's interesting. I had a CISO on here probably a month ago, and he's a CISO out of St. Louis. He lives on a farm, and he, he's one of these people that almost like lives in a bomb shelter, you know, ready for the worst, you know. And my team's always in the background, and we get off, and we're like, okay, we got we got to get our, our supplies stocked up. Are you that person? Do you try to, you know, keep keep its supplies in case something would go down? I, I'm bad, you know, and and uh, <laughs> you know my style. So I'm going to tell you what came first to my mind, and it's not cool, but it's just okay. Good. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I have toilet paper. Did you know oh, that? Toilet paper. Okay. You remember back in the beginning of COVID, all the stores got rushed, and I'm like, of all mm -hmm. the critical, I understand that. That's not pretty if you don't have it, but I'm like, of all the critical things, the world rushed for toilet paper. But no, I mean, yes, I have some water. Um, I live in San Diego, so I might get a little chilly, but it's a very different world than you folks that live in places that have a real winter. Yeah, um, yeah. I have a water filter that if things got really crazy, I could probably go over to one of the reservoirs and pump myself water out of it. I think that probably my government would lock those down very solid because they wouldn't want everyone doing that. Um, but I'm not really a end of the world preparer. I, I like to have enough for a few days just in case. Um, I do think all of us could probably be better prepared. I mean, I remember that outage. I don't know if you remember it. It was, I don't know, geez, it was quite a long time ago, probably maybe as long as 10, 15 years ago when someone in Arizona did something and it brought down the grid on the Southwest for most of a day. And at first it was really cool in my opinion, because it was funny, all the neighbors were out of their house talking to each other. It was like the old days, mm -hmm. but it kind of quickly started to become not so much fun when you couldn't call someone that you wanted to call or you couldn't just get on the internet to check your email um, and like I said, the water would have been probably the next thing after that. But luckily, they got it started up again. Well, Texas kind of had the same thing a few years ago because we were on our way to go out to do an event in Texas. I think we made it right before it happened. But, you know, that was a reality check for them. They weren't used to having snow. And that really had nothing to do with that was know, their cyber. That, sorry, that was their snowpocalypse thing, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were like, I have friends there that were like, it's so cold. We don't have fireplaces. And I was like, yeah. So it's just interesting. But, you know, I do think that what we hear on the news, and of course, everything we hear on the news is, you know, who knows how much of it is true, but we do hear a lot of them talking about power grids. So what, what would your you know, insight be to our, the worry as a country about our power grids. It, it's not anything that you wouldn't hear already on the news or you wouldn't hear from anyone in the industry, which is, as I said earlier, they're very vulnerable systems that are operating and controlling those grids. By their very nature, parts of the grids, the wires have to run through open air. Um, so those are all things that are a little scary and, and the vulnerable systems, even though we go a lot further to protect them, it, I, you know, I, I just think that it's, it's so important that I, I hope, and, and I've seen it starting, but I would love to see us revamp the technology that we use, revamp the means by which 
we um, secure and protect the the systems that control the grid. And I, I, I've seen movement in that direction. I really don't know. If you were to ask me, I, there's a people a lot smarter than myself who have been dealing with this for years, and I don't think it's easy. I mean, otherwise we just fix it. But I think that you know maybe one of the things they could do is they could create a shadow, like a mirrored image of the environment using newer technology, better software, and slowly start rolling it out around the country that way. Because um, again, it's very hard to change your tires while you're driving your car. And, and unfortunately, that's the way most operational technologies work is the systems are so critical and running that they're very, very hesitant to make any significant change to them. So kind of transitioning, you know, I asked you for a couple topics that would be interesting to talk about. And one of them was supply chain. Do you feel like our supply chain is better than it was right after COVID? Are we getting better with, I mean, I always feel bad for, I have a lot of friends that work for the government, you know, across the country that have, you know, spoke at our events and are, do you feel like when you were working for the city, you had more constraints on some of the, you know, supply chain issues than now, you know, being a contractor. I mean, do you have more means because you don't, you're, you're not tied down by all the, the legal stuff and the, I, I don't, I don't know how to, I'm probably not putting it in the right uh, words. You're wording it well. And, and Kim, I mean, it might surprise you, but I think that at the city it was, and I'm pretty, I'm the new guy, so I don't really know all of the policies, but it's a defense contractor. So as a defense contractor, there the government has regulations on what technology we can, and they have recommendations on what we shouldn't use for certain things. And I'm not going to name those to push, to point fingers at any specific organization, but there's two parts to supply chain, in my opinion. There's the fact that during COVID, there, we had difficulty getting things, even when we knew they were safe and legit and they were from a safe supplier. I mean, things like firewalls and switches and routers and just basic laptops. It was very difficult and they were backordered. And I, we still see some of that today. So there's that side of the supply chain. But then there's also the, hey, how do we know that the supplier... Um, isn't giving us a very special extra bonus when we buy something. If we buy the hardware, how do we know it doesn't have something embedded that sends things to a foreign adversary? Um, there's a lot of checks in place when things are imported. Again, it's, it's a hard one to do. I, I think that it, yes, to answer your question, I think it's improved a lot. And I think it's something though that we're gonna need to continue to be very diligent on and Life is all about balance. Almost all the things that you've talked to me today about, I keep finding myself in my head going, you know, it, it, it's hard to find that balance because you can't say, you know, oh, we're not going to allow anything to be imported from, everything has to be made here in the US. Well, that, that's crazy. I mean, China has a lot of really good technology. Um, a lot of our products are manufactured there and sent here. So we just have to figure out how we do that in a way that we can, um, trust but verify or maybe even <laughs> verify and verify again but um yeah it you know we want to we want to be able to use that technology that our peers and our friends or maybe our not great friends but our business partners um offer at the same time we we want to be smart about it and i, I think part of that too is I, I love the fact that 
if you're a commercial company and you're doing research, you might have an environment where you try new hardware that you're not as sure about, you know, where, how it went through the supply chain process because you're not putting any sensitive data on it. Um, but if you're a government contractor and you're developing something important, critical and classified, then you need to use trusted hardware that you know where it came from and that's been checked out. So how much of our supplies, as far as um, in a technical aspect, are coming from like Taiwan? Is it, do we have a lot of our switch from, I'm not really educated on it. I just know that if things would happen bad to them, would we be in trouble? You know, I don't know. I, I, um, I'm not a procurement guru or a um, logistics person. I just know what I see, which is in the past few years, we definitely have had difficulties getting um, all kinds of computer technologies. And I think that it, some of them are, are here. You know, I know like the port up in LA was having problems because they didn't have enough staff to offload. So boats were sitting in the water waiting with the technology. Um, I think they straightened some of that out. I, I don't know specifically with Taiwan. I know we get a lot from there. And um, yeah, it's a global world we live in. So as we saw with COVID and as we've seen during other times, anything that impacts any of our large peer countries it certainly can impact us. And that's just the nature of the world. I don't know that we can undo it. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. I know. Um, question, though, but. Well, it is just because of the times that we're living in, and I try not to go too into politics and what's going on, but it is, um, I found myself, it's so interesting in San Diego, just my Uber rides, you know, like like my Uber drivers, you know, they're, they're really, most of them are, seem to be from the Middle East, and it's interesting hearing their stories and how they ended up in San Diego, And but you also now today have to be careful what you say and who you talk to, because, you know, it's, it's just interesting times that we live in, and how much, you know, where do you have any concerns it's just do you have any concerns of you know should we be concerned right now with everything going on overseas of what kind of products what supply chain you're getting now you know is, now yeah i mean absolutely and i think that you know you you know about this as well because we've talked offline and i know you've heard it from everyone else I think even if you're buying something in our country, even if you're buying something completely U.S. made and it's a trusted org, it, you still need to do, and, and this is the hard part, like where do we get the expertise and the people that know how to analyze computer chips or technology? You don't unless you're a very large technology company, and even then it can be difficult. But I think it's, yeah, you need to, you just need to use good sense. I mean, I, if I remember correctly, Kim, you, you have a background in New York and I have one in Boston. And I tell people that whether it's the internet or purchasing technology, I, I feel like we need to just be smart. We can't, just because something's on the internet and the internet is now sitting in our home doesn't mean we need to treat it like it's someone that we would trust in our home. Um, and I would say the same is true. If you treat the internet or you treat purchases of technology just like you would interactions in the big city, I think that's a safe and smart way to do it. Do you still go out and and enjoy the technology or for the city analogy, do you go out and enjoy the city? Absolutely. But do you trust every person that's trying to sell you something? <laughs> no way. 
do you do you go hey that handbag must be real because they said it was no um and i think the same is very much true there and and same when it comes to someone something as simple as phishing emails or social engineering we have to we have to be very very cynical or very uh questioning of everything but that said you still want to be able to get out there and live so kind of um switching gears to like legal concerns and how how have you seen the change since you maybe even all the way back from the fbi as far as some of the you know the how is the government you know getting involved and you know um just putting some sort of restrictions on you know what companies you know are we ever going to see companies tariffed for you know having a ransom and not having the proper you know um securities a proper security posture where do you think we're going to see that so I, I need to before i say anything i need to tell say something i should have said right out of the gate which is i'm not speaking on behalf of my new employer or my past okay. for that matter okay but i think that the government has a lot of regulations already in place um there's a lot of frameworks and policies and they're always trying to come up with new ones i i think that I don't know. I think that a lot of the best practices are already known and required. It's just they're not really enforced or monitored. And again, in the last few years, this has changed. It's gotten much, much better, but I think that needs to continue. It's scary for me to say that because, you know, regulation is not everyone's favorite thing. But I, I think that's I think that's real important. Um, I, I think it's also I don't know, it's challenging because sometimes the regulations that can be put in place, like when I was working, well, when I was working with the Bureau, sometimes we would go to companies that have, that are highly, highly regulated. And I would talk to the folks and they'd say, you know what, we're so regulated that we can't use or, or implement some new technology that would actually make them much lower risk. Um, that's a, that's a big challenge. Um, what we have a uh, Farsad who I believe is out of California, and he said, as a SOC manager, do you think that one day AI tools can fully manage SOC without any human interaction? I, I love the thought. Um, I, I I think that AI tools can lend yet another point of another knowledge point for us. I I think it's. It's a huge, huge um, leap forward for the world AI is, but I don't think it's the be all end all. I don't think we're, I think we're hopefully in my time frame anyway, we're quite a ways off from um, robots completely taking over. And, and I, I, I don't think, I think AI will radically improve the SOC over time because it knows it can track and it learns what is normal behavior and what's unusual and it alerts on it and it can even take actions. Um, I, I don't think that it's going to eliminate the need for human beings. Um, and if it does, I think there's still going to be, it's kind of like when the computer came out, I think people were like, well, the computer is going to replace all of our jobs. And while I don't, I think AI is considerably different than the computer and that it's more autonomous, I still think that it needs to be managed. Um, and no matter how human-like something is, I think you still need the human brain to come in and and look at the the ones that are the one-offs that the AI model is trained on, but doesn't still doesn't understand. Um, 
It's a really good question. I do think it's going to be, a, I've, I've already seen in some of our tools, just radical improvements in the quality of detections. And when it comes to false positives, that there's a lot less false positives where they're thinking that something's bad and it's not. And, and that's, again, it's because that learns. And um, yeah, very powerful. Great, que awesome question though. I'd love you, to, I, I could ask you back what your thoughts are. And I don't know if I can here. I don't think so. No, he can. He can, he, oh. uh, Farsad can put his comments in there. But while we're waiting for that, do you feel like it's almost been a year that chat GPT came, you know, alive? Do you feel like some of the chatter about chat GPT is dying down a little bit? I mean, I know it's still out there, but it seems like, you know, the first six months, that's all everyone was talking about. Where, where do you think we stand? I mean, do you do you do you use ChatGPT that much? I don't. It depends on what the environment is. Um, if I needed to do a talk on my time that was not from my employer, I, I can tell you right now, I it's not unheard of for me to go to ChatGPT or Google Bard and type in. I'm trying to think of an example question. I mean, I don't know. I do ski patrol, so if I was talking to the patrollers, I might type something in about, you know, can you list the best practices for a ski patroller on scene? And though I could Google that and I could try to dig all that out, it's kind of nice to be able to cheat and get that information, and then I have to vet it. So I guess that goes back to Farzad's um, comment where, you know, even then I'm still going to verify that it's, you know, it's accurate and it's what I want. Well, I did make a mistake with it when it first came out. I had a guest on the show and I just threw her bio in chat GPT and I used it and she was, and I didn't check it or verify it. And she's like, well, actually, um, that's not correct. And I, and I, it, it worked out well. I was well, I was like, well, this is the perfect example why you need to verify everything. And I admitted what I did and it ended up being kind of funny, but um, and it, it's, it's good for like, I've had verbiage on some of our marketing content. That's nice to throw in there and get something new to reword because you sometimes get in your own mindset and it's hard to reword something. So for those type of things, um, you know, I think it's nice. And we had something done by somebody and we threw it in to find out if it was done by a human being or chat GPT and chat GPT will tell you. That was done by a human being, not ChatGPT. So some of those examples are great. And I can tell, like, if I'm on a social media platform that you probably wouldn't like me to be on, you know, you can tell if it's a, a <laughs> robot that put that content out or if it's a real person. You can just tell. You know, if I happen to look at a TikTok that I'm not supposed to be on TikTok, you know, yeah. you can tell if that TikTok's by a chat, if, if it's by a robot or if it's, you know, by, you know, a human. So I think I there think are. I think it's the next shiny thing right now. And I think it will. I don't think it's going away. And I think it is world changing, just like the Internet was, just like computers were. And I think that those changes are both good and potentially bad. But I think, and you, your example is a perfect one, Kim. I mean, <laughs> it, it came back with a partially correct answer. And, and there's a bunch of issues with AI and those tools too. I mean, they're, they're only as good as the information you feed them. And I think even human beings over history, you can go and ask a group of academic geniuses about some question to do with biology, but perhaps they've already formed an opinion and maybe they're wrong. I mean, it happens. 
So the information you're going to get back from that group of experts is not necessarily good. Uh, unfortunately, if the models, the, the learning models are receiving bad information, they will give back bad answers. Um, so we have to take that into account. And also any information you put into those models, it's, it's, you know, the right to be forgotten or the right to request that your data be taken out is, well, to me, the internet is forever regardless. So to me, the same rules should apply for the use of chat GBT and other, um, you know, BARD and other AI models that, that exist for just general social media, which is don't put anything on there that you don't, that you're not willing to give out to the world forever. Um, cause it, but with AI, it's extra difficult to get that out. And I, I, the best analogy I heard, and I don't know if it's completely on base is it's kind of like if you're teaching in a classroom and you say something to your class that you shouldn't have maybe released and you tell them, I don't want you to share this. Okay. There's a chance that that'll happen. If you tell them something and you don't realize that you told them something you shouldn't have, and they go off and talk to their friends in between classes. And then the next week you tell them by then so many people have queried that information and you don't know how, where it branched out to. And I think that's one of the issues with the AI. Um, but I think it's a wonderful, powerful tool. I think that we, as Farzad mentioned, we can use it for a lot of good to help improve our own socks, improve our own security, um, improve our grammar. Um, unfortunately, I think that the adversaries can use it to improve their attack methodologies. Or if they're writing emails, we used to, when I was at the Bureau, I mean, literally it used to be, you know, all of the email phishing training would, would tell you, hey, watch out for misspellings, watch out for bad grammar. First of all, that could have been me because I do that. But, but now what our adversaries in foreign countries do is they'll use AI to write the phishing email and it has better grammar than I have. Um, and, and that can be a challenge. Yeah, I agree, definitely. Just a really quick example, a friend of mine that's a professor, you know, just put a paper in for one of her classes to see what ChatGPT would come back with, and it was like a C paper. She's like, "Well, if my students wow. want to, yeah, if my students want to use it, they're going to get C's, you know. But if if they want to use their own content, they they're not going to get a B or an A, you know. But that was six months ago. Has it? I'm sure it's going to evolve. You know, I'm sure. You know, I don't, I don't know everything behind it, but we are, I told you this hour is going to go fast and we're down to almost three minutes, but what would you, you know, what would some of your advice be to our listeners? We didn't get to hear Frazad's, um, you know, input back, but you know, that's for a different show, but what would some of your um, advice be for people on an everyday practice to just keep their security posture in check? as a just normal human being that, and not even talking about, you know, a company, just what's your best advice to everyone out there? That's a good question. I, I think I, I always say the same thing and, and you've heard me in panel say this, but for me, it's back to basic hygiene. I think it's kind of like the human body. If we want to keep the human body healthy, we've known for a long time what the key things are to do that. Yes, our technology is advanced. And if we screw up, we can, there's things they can do to hopefully help us, but basic hygiene and for the human body and for your computers, keep the computer up to date, just like you would if you're going to live outside and you're a human being, you should be active and do things to keep yourself um, up to date. But for the computers, keep your computers up to date, keep the software on them up to date. Um, trust no one, or I guess trust everyone, but verify, assume that the person who says that they're, that 
they have a million dollar inheritance and they want to give you a hundred thousand if you help them spend it that's probably not realistic um what else let's see um definitely um encourage people to ask questions and i think in the world today it's hard for organizations because they can't really come out and actively disclose where their problems are i mean that would be something that would give the adversaries um ammo that's not needed on the other hand, being aware and being frank inside of the organization and not trying to hide the, the issues, I think is very important um, if you're an organization. And then as a home user, def absolutely have antivirus, have some kind of endpoint security tool on there um, and um, use, uh, just follow best practices. Use long passphrases instead of short passwords. Use two-factor for your personal accounts that are for things like banks and other things. If you're using, don't use the same password for everything. There's a, I could go on and on. I know, and we're and we're gonna they're get, we're gonna get cut off, but I agree. <laughs> and be careful with Venmo because it's been really sketchy lately. But Darren Bennett, who's right currently a stock manager over at Kratos Defense, thanks so much, Darren. I know you're so swamped all the time. You got you spent last week with us and another hour this week. I appreciate your time. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of and and security for all. If you have any questions for Darren, you can find him on LinkedIn. Um, and that's really it. I hope you all have a great weekend. Stay safe, stay secure, and we'll see you next week. Thanks everyone. Thank you for tuning into and security for all. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.